The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about all things startups and tech investing. Uh, today, I am here with Jack Friedman, who is a partner at Peakspan Capital. Peakspan is a growth equity firm focused on B2B software. Peakspan is currently on their third fund and currently has $1.5 billion, with a B, uh, assets under management. Jack has several board affiliations. Uh, just to pick a few, he's a um, board member at Symphony, Shiphawk, and Oki. Uh, Jack, how you doing? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to connecting today. So you just became partner, right? That's right. It was in uh, December of 2021. So yeah, four months new here. How? Tell me that story. Tell me, tell me the story about when you knew you were going to become partner. Did you know about it in the previous fund and you were just waiting to close this fund? Like, How did that come about? Because that's a pretty, pretty awesome role. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly excited to, uh, to be deploying this third fund alongside an awesome existing partnership. I would just quickly maybe backtrack to when I joined Span. I'm happy to even layer in a little bit of history as well. But I, I joined Span in 2016, coming from an investment banking and tech startup background. A uh, handful of years of experience there, working in software, M&A, debt and equity, capital markets, transactions. And joined Peakspan at the very beginning of our first fund in 2016, when we just had two portfolio companies. I was fortunate enough to be here for a good 5-6 years, working with about 20 of our companies and sitting on a dozen of our boards. And... I think maybe a year and a half ago, I was promoted to principal, which every firm has different kind of roles and responsibilities. But as a principal, was leading new partnerships and, and leading some of our, our companies in a board capacity. So got a, a good year and a half, two years of experience there. And then uh, your natural progression to partner, which as you called it out, was coinciding with our third fundraise. So you couldn't be more excited. Uh, we're off to the races here. Yeah. So g- give us a background on Peakspan in general. You know, kind of what are the companies that they're targeting? What's the underall investment thesis? Uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how would you describe uh, Peakspan? Yeah. It, it's a super fun question nowadays because there's so much capital out there, as you know, and everyone has their own cut and swag and how to do things and who to target. So I would start by saying we are hyper, hyper focused from a variety of vantage points. But at the highest level, we focus on B2B software and tech-enabled services models. Um, always recurring revenue, but just the revenue model could be different. doesn't have to be SaaS. Within that, we break down our firm into what we call blueprint market themes. So each partner or principal only gets to focus on three to four themes at any point in time. So I always get a chuckle when I say, hey, we're hyper-focused, but we, we look at uh, fintech payments, supply chain, e-commerce, and capital healthcare, <laughs> yeah. um, which is all true. We, we cover 
pretty much everything except maybe gov tech today in some corners of the ad tech universe that are are pretty technical that we, we don't have a, a lead yet. But individually, I only spend my time in supply chain, e-commerce logistics, payments, and a little bit of digital health. Uh, and I have other columns that focus on three to four teams as well. So when you look at it on a partner level, we are hyper, hyper focused on theme. How do you, how do you, how do you pick who gets what theme? It, it's a natural evolution. I'll, I'll share mine, but we have partners that <laughs> it's like a fantasy draft. Like you guys like have to like pick numbers. Yeah. I, I traded this theme for that theme. And <laughs> <laughs> I traded, I, I traded, uh, I traded crypto for, uh, for digital health. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, it, it is funny. Actually, we, we are welcoming in an awesome cohort of six new analysts, which is the first time we're doing that. And we are kind of staffing them across all of our, our themes. And we did have a partner say, Hey, you know, uh, future analyst, you know, XYZ really likes marketing tech. Um, uh, Jack, like, can we switch and put this person on marketing tech? Cause they just keep pinging me with new ideas and are really passionate about it. And I was like, well, you know, that's, that's one of the best analysts in our class. Um, however, you're currently working with the best analyst in the class. Um, we'll trade, you know, blockbuster trade top two analysts in our cohort. And so, um, that's just a funny anecdote, but, but, uh, but no, we have partners that are focusing on themes like security, human capital management, customer experience management and sales tech for over 10 years. I personally have been focusing on supply chain for about five years, uh, e-commerce as well. Payments. I'm more new to probably, you know, two plus years focusing on that theme. So. Um, you will start to develop theme and domain expertise, typically you know, while working on other themes. And eventually, as a partner or principal, you will kind of launch coverage. And it's, it's a big deal. I mean, we present a huge thesis deck, do a ton of research, form a bunch of relationships, and then we'll formally launch you know, quote-unquote coverage on a blueprint theme um, at the right time. So that, that's how it starts. And then we, we stay in our themes for, for decades, typically. Oh, okay. So So you pick your theme... And you essentially make a partner level um, presentation on said theme, get kind of consensus that this is a theme you guys should take on, and then you find companies fitting that theme. That's exactly right. I'll give you a natural example. In our portfolio in Fund One, we probably had four of our 12 portfolio companies touch payments in some way vertical SaaS company like CloudBeds that now has a, a booming payments product. Pet Desk Fund One company has a payments offering. Um, we had uh, you know payments focused investments that were kind of under other themes. But eventually I said, you know, payments is eating software and you know payments plus software is eating financial services and it's a trillion dollar market opportunity. We need to launch this as a formal theme and um, we, we've since made uh, two two partnerships in the space with a couple other under term because it's, it's such an active area. And specifically, I'm talking about either B two B payments or kind of a vertical SaaS uh, B two B payments opportunity. So that that'd be an example of how you you would naturally uncover a theme within the span you know system. You know, speaking of payments, and we're going to kind of digress off topic, but I could do that because it's my show, and you know. <laughs> um, Thinking about payments within vertical SaaS, do you see that you know the software licensing or subscription revenue is going to go by the way of the dodo, and um, you know it'll be offered you know almost at no cost, 
uh, in exchange for you know payment hookups. It's a, it's a really great topic that is no definitive answer, but I will uh, give you my my take. I think in certain segments that we've looked at, the size of the prize is so large on the payments front, where if you own the wallet of a subset of consumers or a subset of businesses, where you are effectively, let's say, their bank account, right? Let's say you're a neo bank or something, or or let's say you want to be their credit card, you're a corporate charge card company. The the size of the prize to own that amount of payments volume is so large that you can offer it for free. There's a balance between companies that will go to market fully free and make money on interchange or other financially related payment transaction volumes. Um, Or companies that do a dual approach and say, hey, we offer a ton of functionality vis-a-vis our SaaS application or spend management application, and we'll make money in in both ways. And I think it will be interesting to see how each individual market shakes out with respect to competitive intensity, um, commoditization of those fintech products. And I I don't think every market will shake out the same way. Some will go full bore free and will make money on payments and others will be a combination. Yeah, I was looking at um, this Toast K one, and I think only like thirty five percent of their of their uh, revenue is is software related. Yep, and the rest of it's kind of other payments or uh, you know factoring, you know capitalizing the restaurants, hardware sales, uh, etc. So I mean, there's tons of way to get TAM expansion in these verticals that used to once be thought as very small. Yep, a hundred percent. Like you B two B. Payments is, uh, gosh, like two hundred trillion. Um, consumer payments is also very large, uh, very still still pretty low penetration by software platforms attacking those those areas. Um, and even like take companies like Toast or Avid Exchange, like people are so excited about or Bill.com, like the the initial um, front runners in these markets are still you know seeing lots and lots of greenfield opportunity to digitize payments. Um, so you, you have to shop your shop in those companies, but even those companies have such a, a wide runway because it's just so so damn large, which gets us really excited. And so when you're doing this, you know, thematic planning and then presentation to the partner group, do you revisit it every year or is this something that you do in the beginning of every fund? How does that work? Yeah, I think we naturally will revisit it every year, not in the sense that we make a decision on like, do we want to keep investing in this theme? Yes or no. We kind of have to make that commitment and be a long-term investor in a theme. Certain themes, you'll actively say, hey, this year is maybe not the year. We we did a bunch in hospitality. Did we do a hospitality investment in 2021? No. Um, uh, not because we don't love the segment, but because the hospitality industry was just a little odd to try to price and, and figure out. Um, we at multiple points in time backed away from themes when the valuation environment was too robust. Security software, for example, um, goes through you know, peaks and troughs of just being very um, you know heavy valuations. Then you see consolidation, so we've taken pauses on that market. And then I'd say every year we will um, sometimes you know make it publish this online, but also internally we'll identify a top three sub-segments that we want to make investments in. And then, you know, overall, maybe 10 sub-segments that we're actively tracking. And that will guide a lot of our research and effort so that we're not, you know, spraying and praying or 
um, you know, jumping at you know opportunities as they come our way. We're, we're more proactive in reaching out to a very finite set of companies with a thesis and spending more time with those founders and entrepreneurs and uh, and and you know converting at at a uh, maybe a, a higher rate but a lower like lower output uh, versus reaching out to all companies or even all payments companies. We're reaching out to a select some set of payments companies and themes that we know well. And so how much do you time do you spend uh, researching themes? Um, and I'm fascinated by this because, you know, I, you know, as a later stage, as a later stage guy, I can see, you know, doing thematic and theme-based investing. Actually, the best investors that I know do this. I don't do this because I'm not that smart, right? And, yeah. you know, I'm a one-guy show. I do have an analyst. Uh, but, you know, I, I basically find the company... Right, it gets caught in my web, and then I see if there's market tailwinds and trends. And you know, I guess maybe I'm in early formations, uh, an early kind of like formations of, of thinking about themes, but not so much that I think about themes and then I actually proactively go out and try to find. But I'm also casting a much higher or a much wider net because I deal with more earlier stage companies, and you know, I just have to see more. Yeah. It's a really good topic, and, and there's always like two sides to the coin, and a good balance when when prospecting. Um, as you know, there's a lot of capital out there, and it's you know actually relative to like maybe ten years ago, um, it, it's it's tough to find good you know, partnerships where, where both sides see the world the same way, and it's the right scale and the right growth and the right everything. And there's not 50 investors lining up, so um, to my next statement, I, I will say we, we do take some of that approach where we have other things we look for. We key off of other attributes in terms of founders that think like us, situations that um, are a good fit for Peakspan, which would include not wanting to raise $100 million and you know, earn millions and millions a month, um, not you know going for an IPO or bust or, or unicorn or bust kind of mentality like that will narrow our pool a little bit as well. But on the thematic front, we, uh, we I, I think of it as a very natural part of our day to day and model. Every single day, um, I you know shame on me that I, I don't read a lot of widespread tech news or, or like other types of news other than my supply chain, e commerce, and payments feeds. And we have homegrown technology platforms that track specific words and phrases in companies and the payments. And all of our themes, but for me, it's famous supply chain e-commerce. So we'll be reading those content sources every single day. We'll be um, always looking at uh, like prospective lead sources that are in our themes and the segments that we're tracking using our, our tech platform. And uh, and it's it's, it's, a, it's a natural force and function. I I literally cannot you know go talk to a um, a uh, I don't know a market like a consumer marketplace company or a ride sharing company or a uh, insure tech company because I don't cover those spaces. So it makes it actually pretty straightforward where you you hunt in the the forest that you say you're going to hunt in. I don't know if that was a helpful answer, but that yeah, that, that that's really good. And so you know, just to circle back, how, how much time do you spend doing research on your themes? Um, I would say. If I average it out in a, in a day, it's um, you know maybe maybe I, I'd like to say ninety minutes a day every single day, but probably more than sixty. Okay, 
Okay. All right. So I'm going to start altering my schedule. Thank you for that. I just try to do what guys like you do. So my, my next question is around, because this is, I think, a really good segue is, you know, thinking about, you know, peak span in, you know, in a vacuum, you've got some very, very smart partners that have had a lot of invest, investing, probably operating experience. And you think about t- uh, trends and uh, tailwinds that are happening because that's your job is to find companies that have a ton of tailwinds and trends. And you cast a picture of what you want to invest in and what type of company is going to be successful in this type of of environment. But then you go to market and you might see a company that, you know, doesn't necessarily match exactly how you think it should go. Um, and you know, you said something very interesting, which is, you know, we like, you know, like founders, you know, that, that think we like we do. So how do you balance kind of like internal biases towards a space or a company versus, you know, saying to the founder, like, okay, well, you know, they obviously know their market segment a lot better. They might play in a bigger pie that has a ton of tailwinds. But how do you balance that? Because I would think that would be very difficult. Um, it's a great question. Do you mind just rewording the, the last bit there? You're, you're talking about balancing like how we think about markets from our perspective versus how the founder does. Yeah, so I'm thinking about like if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a you know if I'm doing a lot of thematic investing and I'm thinking about okay this is the problem that needs to be solved and this is how you should solve it um, and then we go out and we find a company and it's not that picture right it's actually fifty percent of that picture and they might not think about the space the same as you so how do you know you're right Yeah, no, it's a fascinating question. So first of all we 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 challenge each other internally all the time on this okay so that's a great culture thing you have you have the, the ability to challenge yeah um the, the question that we'll ask each other in our in our investment committee if you were sitting on the inside is you know hey jack is this uh is this a situation where you like the thesis too much where you're convincing yourself to like this the company for example like let's say i, I proactively publish i do this you can look up my top 10 supply chain and payment themes. Are you promoting your own blog on my show? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I, very, very, I, I, I slipped. I'm very, I'm a fake. No, um, you, you can plug it. You can plug okay, it. Okay. Consider it plugged. Um, so we'll, we'll publish those, those themes. And then um, obviously you're excited about, you know, the, the shots that you call. Um, usually not, you know, usually never dead wrong, but, almost always wrong about the timing where I was talking about sustainability software 24 months ago. And like, I can definitively say it's like a really interesting segment that everyone's talking about, but TBD, how many like real opportunities there are in our stage. The interesting thing about doing thematic investing in our stage is that we're not um, like, we, we have, we have to be right about the theme and the timing. So we laughed at, you know, AI, and blockchain three years ago, I, I certainly did my homework and research, and we're now actually uh, our own portfolio companies or prospects are touching those trends. Um, there, there are there are trends that are like uh, even drones. Um, in some of our themes, we have prospects that are relating to the drone space, but we laughed at that four years ago because that was like a venture concept. So in the, the hype cycle, things that you know, we identify thematically could take three, four years to play out in like a growth stage company environment where it's a real opportunity for us. 
So I think we have to always balance thematic investing with market maturity and what is what, what is what markets are ready for a growth stage platform to take scale. And that also just to read between the lines there, it comes down to um, to customer adoption in the procurement software space, a space I know really well. There are a lot of segments and concepts that I think are super freaking cool and make a lot of sense. Consolidated invoicing, digitizing supplier payments. Um, you know, using AI in a spend analytics setting, like lots of stuff that I know procurement organizations should do. Are they doing it still? No, because it takes an extra three years for some concepts like that to make their way into the enterprise. So yeah, you, you got to be able to get them to log into software first, right? Before you get them to you you get off Excel, right? Before you get them off Excel, you got to get them off on-prem. You got to you know, work up the courage if you're a chief government officer to like pull the trigger on a cloud-based system. Like we're still living in the stone age in so many categories. So you definitely have to balance like trying to make a thematic investment with, uh, with what is reality. So I, I think it's a su- super good topic. Okay. Awesome. That's, uh, that, that's super helpful. Uh, you said, um, uh, a term also that you like to invest in and that's tech enabled services. So how does that fit into, uh, you know, what is a tech enabled service and how, uh, you know, how, how has Peakspan identified those types of companies to be really good companies? Uh, great question. I think, I hate the word services sometimes because it gives the wrong connotation or even like software as a service that's, that's been using the word services. So let me just clarify when I say technical service, I mean a technology solution that is SaaS, recurring revenue business model. You're, you're signing, you know, 120K ACV deals, um, regular SaaS playbook pipeline team, but where it's not your classic Salesforce or Slack 90% gross margin product where you you issue some licenses and you maybe try to drive some engagement with customer success, but it's just a full cloud-based product. What I'm talking about are solutions where you have technology and usage, etc., but you also have people involved in the flow to deliver the ultimate value to the customer. So some examples could be like an accounting or bookkeeping automation provider who um, you're using a lot of tech and software and you probably have 70-80% gross margin tops um, mm-hmm. where it's a SaaS recurring revenue ser- service, but there is a human in the loop. There are people involved. Another example could, could be um, in e-commerce, like content curation where you're offering content to retailers to put on their websites that's optimized and it's um it's using AI and there's lots of modules where it displays all this content that drives more conversion. But you have a stylist in the background who is helping just make sure those uh, pieces of content are optimized. I'll pause there. Um, I know you're gonna come in come in, but those are just some examples of where people are involved in the solution, but it's still recurring revenue. Right. Because you know, the content, I mean, content's kind of like code in that it, it's scalable, right? But generally, uh, code has a repeated, of repeatability aspect to, to it, in which case you continue to, to derive value from it. Whereas content, like once you finish it, you know, the value's finished, right? And so you are continually needing to make new content in order to keep your customers. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll maybe I'll throw in another couple examples to drive it home. The, the punchline is um, in in the you know, business world. Let's say we, we focus on business software, right? So in the business world, there are lots of pockets of opportunity to help 
optimize or outsource or solve business problems. Some percentage of that can be solved with SaaS applications where you give a tool to a user, like an HR person or a salesperson or a IT person, and you give them access to a license and they can solve their own problem with that license. Internal communication, Slack, solved through licenses. Um, Snowflake, I don't really know what they do, but it's, it's a license-based... <laughs> Everyone knows who they are. No one knows what they do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I read their, I read the guy's book and I still don't know what he does. I, it's a great book. Uh, we'll, we'll plug his book. Um, so, uh, so those are solved through people in the organization using the product to, to drive their own value. I, I'd say like, I don't know, a third or close to half of use cases still are not like DIY. I'll solve it through a software platform. They are, we need help so bad that we'll pay you a million dollars a year um, uh, recurring revenue license to you know use your technology plus your people to solve this problem for us. Um, I sometimes call this like do it for me automation. Um, we sometimes call it like SaaS plus if SaaS plus a scalable services element, but where the, the, the there has to be like a people element attached to actually solve the problem and it can be really powerful at scale because what you are skipping is um, leaving it to the hands of the customer to you know fail in solving the problem. So you have this big meaty problem for Fortune 500 enterprise. Uh, if you can successfully like sell a SaaS license and say let's roll it out to 5,000 users and you can all solve this problem, it's going to be great. You, that that's a very scalable solution. Or you can say, let us take on the problem. We're going to attack it with our people plus our, our process plus our technology. And we're going to do that at like a 70% gross margin versus a 90% gross margin. But we're going to make sure it's done right. And we're going to drive the results for you. So your people don't even have to do it. Right. So, I mean, and, and a good example of this is like healthcare, right? I mean, so many SaaS solutions are offered in healthcare, but the problem with healthcare is adoption. And getting out of that workflow. So having people actually do it for you, like is actually solving the problem, right? As opposed to just trying to, you know, sell a product that has high gross margin for the sake of just saying it's a high gross margin. Exactly. And a lot of these markets that we look at, like they have both options out there. And even the companies we're investing behind could very easily take their code or, or their light, their usage, their platform and flip it externally. It's just a matter of like, is the software facing the internally, like the software vendor that we're investing in or externally the customer? It's the same value creation and same technology. It's just a matter of, hey, is this market ready for the enterprise to take it on and uh, and build it themselves or, or use the software to solve the problem themselves? Or should we use our own software to solve it for them? Or in many cases, it's a combination. Right, it's not. It's, there's no. It's not black and white. You can you can do a little bit of the customer using it, and a little bit of our people helping drive usage. But because it's so hard to, to garner adoption, especially in an enterprise software setting, we're seeing a lot of very successful solutions not be afraid to include some people in the flow of their solution. Great, solving the problem first. I love it. So, what size checks are you writing out of your third fund? Uh, let's see. You know, fifteen to twenty million on average. We we have lots of ways that we can um, we can flex down, and, and certainly lots of ways we can flex up. We can we can do up to probably fifty million for partnership. But 
I'd say on average, it's, um, it's 15 to 20. And uh, what is the, the follow-on strategy in the reserves without giving out too much inside baseball? Yeah, there's no, um, there's no secret sauce there. Um, we, we support our companies and we have ample room for reserves. Um, we, we try to be, you know, as flexible as possible with our, our capital in terms of like, you know, how much primary is really needed, how much secondary is needed. We don't, you know, shy away from, um, encouraging founders to take some trips off the table. It's just a good, you know, wealth diversification strategy, but we never push that. Um, we, we can follow on, you know, if we did a $15 million investment, we can do another 15, um, because we have a, a big fund now. So we try to be pretty flexible and, and cater more to the needs of the entrepreneur versus the needs of our fund. And one thing to really drive home because, um, and not for any bad reasons, but if some of our other peer funds do move a little bit up market, we are not moving up market. We have more capital to support our businesses, but our special our specialty, sorry, which I did not cover before, outside of being thematic, we like to consider ourselves emerging growth stage experts. So what does that mean? Growth stage companies, I'd say traditionally are five to ten million in ARR, even ten to twenty million in ARR. There are a lot of growth firms that specialize in that profile. Peakspan consider us two to six million ARR sweet spot. We've partnered with lots of companies that are 10, 15, 20, even 25 million in error. That is not a problem. We're happy to do those. But in terms of like the majority of our partnerships and where we have a lot of expertise, I always say where we're most impactful to our partners is helping you get from two, three, four, five, six million to 25, 30, 35 million. That exact trajectory is where we have 12 operating advisors to, to help out, a bunch of sector experts to help. Um, a lot of like external resources and, and educational content and modules and recruiters and just our whole network is like really purposeful towards that exact growth path and, and not anything sooner and not anything later, but that exact segment of the scale up journey. And so you have offices in New York and San Francisco. So you are in the epicenter of, of funding, essentially. What are you seeing right now? Um, I know this is an evergreen show, but there definitely is, um, uh, you know, some some re-rating on risk on 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 growth stocks in the public markets. What are you seeing as a uh, somebody who's in the you know has later stage companies that are raising subsequent rounds? Um, what are you seeing from a multiple perspective? I mean, it's a very timely question. Like, you know, ask me that question a week ago, and then next week, and today, and I might give you three different answers. I think the the, the most definitive. Um, the conclusion or, or observation I can offer is that it feels like starting January 1st this year, every single company was on a mission to secure, you know, one or two years of runway before April. So I would say like these last four months have been some of the busiest of, of my career. And I've just seen the most companies say, Hey, you know, we weren't thinking of raising, but now we are. And I think there was a bit of a kind of frantic, like, Oh, we're seeing the, the market fall out. Um, there's no bottom to this market. Multiples are declining. I heard a stat the other day that like fintech multiples reverted, you know, to that 40x like you know number back to like 15 to 20x, which is still like super high, but um, they were clearly at like a huge premium. And, and growth stocks in particular were at that like 30, 40, 50x, just 
crazy numbers. And we saw some of that exuberance last year. That exuberance is, you know, that, that shine is kind of worn off. And I think there's still lots of good, healthy funding rounds happening and, and that good valuations. But um, some of that you know, disillusionment is, uh, is starting to wear. And yeah, I would say my, my biggest observation has been that there's a lot of companies looking for capital now because there may be a little bit of, of fear and uncertainty about the next 12 months. I'll pause there in case you want to like re-ask the question or ask it in a different way, but that was that'd be my first observation. Yeah, and you know, you being a you know, I would say more on the growth equity side versus the venture side, play you know much more conservatively on the valuation game. Am I am I am I right? Is that a correct statement? That, that's right. I would say there's there's less variability in our valuation frameworks. We we take a pretty unique approach to valuation. Um, I don't. I, I think it's like very natural and logical, but it's you know you'd have a different conversation with a different investor about what it means to like ascribe a multiple to a company. We try to look at a reasonable view on a three-year plan and think about you know if we hit a conservative version of that plan, you know what's the sensible valuation today where we're all happy. It's one thing to say fintech. Your payments companies are, are going for 40 times revenue. Your toast is 40 times revenue. We're looking at a restaurant tech payments company that's similar to toast in, in some ways. So let's pay 40 times revenue times their, their 5 million ARR. Yeah, well, but toast is, yeah, toast is trading four times now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, and you replace it with something else. That's a 400 million valuation. So that means in three years, we have to. You know, think about exiting for over a billion realistically to be everyone to be happy. And no one wants that. I mean, it feels good to, to raise a high price valuation now and, and pound your chest and be on the cover of TechCrunch. But in, in two years, you want to be aligned with your investor and be able to say, Oh, like Toast wants to acquire us for 600 million or 500 million. Like that's great. We all make really good money. We're all happy. We're all aligned. We're not overextending ourselves or setting the bar too high. So I would say we, we pay very consistent and fair valuations um, based on 10-year averages for SaaS. But it sees the little variability because it's the 10-year average. And we're more focused on making sure we put the company in a healthy spot with lots of runway, lots of optionality, lots of alignment with their stakeholders. And we believe, as like maybe our most important thesis at Pinkspan, that creating those situations for founders and teams is the most value-optimizing thing that we can do for our entrepreneurs because 100% of their wealth is tied up in this asset typically. So shame on us if we're paying a high valuation and, and pushing the company to go for a really big outcome because for them, they need to be damn sure that the outcome is going to be a win and our entire business model at Expand is, is zero risk of failure and optimizing for a very... Uh, Achievable, reasonable outcome that's not an outlier outcome, but one where everyone is successful. So that's just some of our thinking in terms of how we will approach valuation. It's, it's pretty thoughtful in terms of how we optimize for ultimate success. And so what is the 10 year average for SaaS? What's that benchmark for you? Yeah, I want to say it's, um, it's depending on like the group. We look at 10 year average SaaS. Let me see if we pull it up. We also look at 10 year high growth SaaS. I want to say high growth SaaS is like, is double digits and in not high growth SaaS is um is, is seven to eight x um, and 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 that's over 
triple triple digits for the high growth SaaS, right? Is that like two hundred percent, three hundred percent, or? Um, no, actually, it's like uh, I think it's thirty percent. These are like established companies, like billions in revenue that are growing thirty percent. So, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the on the public side, so yeah, I mean, a forty percent grower is a monster in the public. That twenty twenty year average for for just our SaaS universe is six point two x. Ten year average for our SaaS universe is seven point four x. So I spot on. And if I have the high growth, I'll let you know. I don't think I do here, but yeah, it's a ten x. Awesome. Well, those are those are super awesome metrics. So now you're a partner. Now you're not you know just responsible for finding the opportunities, bringing them to you know peak span to add to their portfolio. But now you're in charge of raising capital, right? Or at least partially in charge. So how do you think about that as the next stage in your career and through relationship building? Yeah, I, I maybe a weird answer, but I, I think it's super fun. Um, to give you maybe some some color behind that, um, you, you just recently launched your own firm, so I hope this is falling on super warm ears. I've been helping build Kickspan since the beginning of Fund One, um, and I've enjoyed building Kickspan as a company probably just as much as I've enjoyed developing as an investor. Just the idea of you know building up funds, helping our entrepreneurs through you know exits and new rounds and helping build our team and serve programs. We recently did our inaugural CEO event in Sundance, Utah. So stuff like that, I, I really love. And I see... I, I like the long-term nature of building something of meaning that will impact lots of entrepreneurs, management teams, and, um, and employees, and those customers. Like I, I love seeing that, that long-term trajectory and vision. So when it comes to Helping out a bit more in raising capital and you know telling the Peaks Band story and why we care so much and what we're building and, and what our strategy is. Um, it's super fun because I got a hand in developing that strategy. So I I really yeah you're you're essentially a co-founder. Yeah, you you can you can say um, what gonna give you know to your respect and credit to our actual co-founders, but we, I was the first um, along with my colleague Sunkit first. Uh, First investment hires, so we we've definitely put in our, our ten thousand hours building Peakspan, and for that reason, you know, take great pride in what we're doing here and are super passionate about it. And as you know, when you're, you're passionate about something, it becomes you know one of the, the funnest things ever to do. So I, I look forward to you know increasing our, our LP base and our funds and, and being able to help more companies grow and achieve their missions. That's like the best. I'm super bullish on Peakspan because I think that venture capital and private equity um, has a terrible culture of succession planning and bringing on people and um, and sharing in the pie because you know from a partner perspective you're more entitled to some of the carried interest that happens and you know that's kind of the the um, real coveted piece of economics that makes venture capitalists um, job worth worth doing and you know I mean Peakspan has been around for a couple of years but to you know continue to be successful in the race continuing to Promote people from within, bring them in as partners, offer them additional comp, and, and splitting that pie up. I just think is incredible, and it's uncommon. Well, I appreciate that, and more so our uh, our founders would really appreciate you saying that. That was a, a core tenant of their um, of their thesis, and you know, in 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 a, in a weird way, all three partners uh, took that trajectory at a prior firm called Investor Growth Capital. 
um, where they were all hired at like associate VP level and worked their way up to partner at that for firm and span and saw the power of like growing up in the model that you ultimately lead and invest in. And um, you see a ton of like awesome you know leverage in that as a firm and can do a lot of great things when you invest by your people and um, and think long term. So uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's a super important part of our mission. So what are you excited about right now? Um, you know, right now, you know, like any growing firm, and like you know, starting your own own platform, um, there there's probably you know, two two fronts. You know, one is we have a good amount of capital to deploy, as there is a lot of a, we have a, a a really nice you know pipeline of new portfolio companies that we're bringing online, which. Um, we want to, you know, really just knock out of the park for those founders in terms of getting the deals done and funded and on, you know, onboarding those partnerships, making sure that our resources are available to those teams. Um, so, you know, out of the suit, we're going to be adding quite a few new partners, the beginning of fund three, and we're super focused on making them successful. And then separately in our own right, uh, we're, we're growing our teams so that we're going to be about, you know, 15 to 18 investment professionals and then We'll finally have like a little bit more non-investment professional teammates, which is very exciting, and will help you know drive forward a lot of our initiatives on the marketing, events, um, portfolio engagement, and um, um, a bunch of other cool stuff. Uh, so, so we're very focused on making sure we we train up our teammates and onboard our new new teams, and uh, we get a new office. Uh, in New York here, which we're excited about. So lots of exciting stuff on the firm side that we want to make sure we really do it right and uh, and make sure the next generation of leaders at Pittsfan are in a good spot. So I would say those are the two fronts that we're focused on this year. And you've had the incredible experience as of I of, of sitting on, on boards and um, participating in management discussions and uh, governance, um, fundraising strategies, et cetera. So tell me a little bit about what in, I mean, you've had in not just one, you've had several board, um, board opportunity exposures. So what, what are some of the key takeaways of what makes a really great board member versus a really bad board member? Great question. The first thing I would say is... Being able to constructively challenge, it depends on the founder, but I'd say like probably more often than not, um, the company obviously has been in this for anywhere from like three to 10 years. Like you said, they know the market very well. They know their businesses very well. They, you know, I'd, I'd hope they think that they are on top of their business and metrics and, and plans. The, the hardest moments and also the most beneficial moments are when we can you know challenge a decision or challenge a strategy, whether it's just you know maybe for the sake of challenging because we think there could be another path or maybe it's because we have been on um, as a as a group we've been on seventy five boards and work with seventy five management teams so we've seen probably a hundred sales leaders probably probably hundred fifty sales leaders. Um, lots of different like ways to run finance, lots of different HR issues, lots of different when it comes to capital capitalizing the company and raising new funds. We like to think that we are 
pretty well versed and connected in you know, the fundraising world when we're doing follow-on rounds with new parties. So I would say when we can push a company to rethink something or you know foresee maybe a misstep, um, and, and maybe like I'll give you the most classic example would be raising a new round and thinking we need to double every team and, and hire incredibly fast because we see an opportunity or maybe we felt under-resourced and we need to give people a break and we need to like spread around the work and we need this, that, and other thing. And you can put that all together and your burn rate goes from 200 a month to 800k a month. And you know we've seen firsthand all of the challenges that that can lead to. Um, so I, I would say a long-winded answer of what makes a good board member is constructively challenging important decisions and, and you know allowing the company to definitely arrive at their own answer and strategy, but benefit from all the times that you probably you know, mess up at another company and yeah made mistakes in various ways uh, or seen mistakes be made. So I'd say that's like the that's the one that's the top thing I'd say. I'm happy to cite others, but that's the top yeah, one. no, I think that's right because. You know, I think business is probably the the biggest ego game that there is, um, and the biggest game based on emotion and logic doesn't always necessarily make sense, right? When you're challenging someone's baby or their or their tactic or their strategy. But you know, what I've noticed as being a board member, I learned this the hard way because of not doing it right, is that I would rather be effective than be right. And because effectiveness is going to accomplish the mission, not being right. Exactly. Uh, Super well said. Uh, awesome. Jax, thank you so much for coming on. A couple quick uh, questions for you. What's your favorite book? Favorite book? Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll name, uh, name an author. I, I like a lot of the Cal Newport books. That just immediately comes to mind. Um, I'm a big um, nonfiction reader. Like the, I hate this, this title, the self-help section of um, Barnes & Noble my section. So... I, I like uh, I like Cal Newport. I also been reading um, the uh, Bridgewater Associates um, guys' book, Principle, um, or the uh, the rise and fall of you know great society. What is it? The changing yeah. world order. Yeah, I've read Principles, and then I'm like a third of the way through the, the, like the changing world order book because I think that's fascinating how he like studies history so discreetly and like his investment theses and decisions are based on society making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, yeah, so if, he, if he's correct, like it's really scary. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So I, I find those two authors fascinating. Yeah. I love principles. That's one of my favorite books. And I started reading like the changing world order and I thought to myself, like, I really hope this guy's wrong because, you know, but like there's all, all signs lead to him being right. So, um, awesome. Best piece of business advice you've ever gotten. I uh, think uh, be, be patient, think long term. And then, what about uh, people you like to follow online? People I like to follow online, either um, investors, yeah, you know, technologists, innovators. Yeah, I um, I I, uh, I subscribe to that uh, not boring newsletter and a couple other newsletters, maybe like the Generalist. There's like long form tech deep dives. I find. Uh, find really fascinating. God bless those long form guys. I know. I, mean, I, know. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't yeah. do it. I'm like, like it's painful for me to read it. I can imagine only writing it. Yeah. 
absolutely. I, I yeah, I am. Um, like it's good, but I'm like, holy shit, this is a lot of information. I can't. I, I like I can't get through somewhere. I can't I get too on a topic. Like I, I want to go deep, but I wish there was a medium. But like I yeah. don't want all that detail. But it, it's, it's super good. It's awful. Um, my uh, my blog literally is like at max ten sentences. <laughs> you know, it literally is just like a thought. And it's and it's and it's usually just kind of in my mind or something that I've written down that I just want to articulate and helps me think. And and you're a content creator as well, and you know you probably can really you know find the value and 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 pontificate about how much it helps clarify your thinking. Just actually put it down on paper. Um, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a quick uh, I'm a quick um, you know flash of endorphins. Yeah, I'll see it too. I, I like to get down like a paragraph a day or something and it turns into a page and a half every week. And, and that's my blog. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack. Thank you, Jack, for coming on. Hopefully, we'll get you on again. This is where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and tech investors about all things value creation and startups. Uh, we drop a podcast every Tuesday. If you like what you saw, please subscribe, share with your friends, leave a review. Um, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.